0: Good afternoon, good morning. Welcome to Cobalt Banker Commercial Chatter. CBC Chatter is a forum that we offer every quarter where we talk about not just real estate or commercial real estate, but we talk about the topics behind the headlines, behind what is driving trends in commercial real estate. I'm Dan Spiegel, Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Cobalt Banker Commercial. Today, we're gonna have a really exciting panel and discussion on the future of cities. You know, my background originally, is uh, in graduate school was in urban planning. And I read the book by Jane Jacobs, a well-known book about the uh, death, uh, life and death of American cities. That was written back in the 1960s. And the topic of the life and death of cities recurred, I think it's recurred for a long time, but it came up again in the 80s when there was uh, problems in uh, cities like New York City, and there was talk about exodus. And Now we're on the, the next version, the 19, the 2020s version of what is going on with cities and what is the future of cities in the post-pandemic era. I'm super excited today to welcome two great guests and thinkers about the urban environment. Uh, and I'd like to welcome to the panel now, that is Greg Lindsay. Greg Lindsay is a senior fellow with the MIT F- uh, Future Urban Collective Lab. Uh, And someone I've heard speak a number of times, and I love chatting with and conversing with, always a fast thinker about cities. And then Tracy Haddon Lowe, who is a fellow at Brookings, Brookings, uh, also a great thinker and someone I also enjoy chatting with and listening to as we talk about the trends going on in the urban environment, cities, and all the themes that drive uh, that are behind what drives commercial real estate activity, uh, both in the cities and in suburban or exurban areas around the country. Greg and Tracy, welcome. I'll let you give a few minutes to introduce yourselves. So, Greg, over to you.
1: Well, thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure being here with all of you today. Uh, it's great to, great to be here with you, and it's great to be here with Tracy, whose work I'm a huge fan of and have cribbed from copiously. So, I can't wait to hear her thoughts on all this. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I guess it's sort of a, well, I don't know if there's an opening statement or just a quick introduction, but I'll just say quickly that I'm a senior fellow at New Cities, which is a small think tank based here in Montreal. I wrote a report that came out during the pandemic, right before the US elections on sort of millennials and where they would move. And you know, part of my take on what's happened during the pandemic is that they all decided to make their life changes all at once, and that describes at least a piece of what's happening with regards to cities. Uh, there's a lot more to it there with, obviously, return to office and, of course, uh, international immigration to U.S. cities and whatnot, but we can get into that from there. Um, over to you, Tracy.
2: Thanks, Greg. So um, I have concentrated most of my writing during the pandemic on the shocking impacts to the leisure and hospitality sector that um, we experienced in the first year of the pandemic and what the long-term consequences both for workers and for enterprises in that sector might be. And then more recently, I have been interested in what's going on with with the office sector and what the future of American downtowns, which are typically 70% or even more, sometimes 90% plus, Um, office space and what will happen as we confront a long-term structural shift in the quantity and type of office space that is in demand.
0: Excellent. So I think the audience can tell we're going to have a really exciting conversation. This could go any of a number of directions. We'll see where we head up as we talk about the future of cities. I do want to remind the audience if you have any questions you'd like to ask during our conversation, uh, just put your name and affiliation in the chat along with your question, and our moderator will uh, interrupt every now and then an appropriate time to ask questions. We'll also take questions at the very end if you'd prefer to save your questions to the end. So let's get started. Um, I think we're going to start at something that's, I'm going to kind of flip it a little bit. We're going to start at sort of the ex-urban environment or the creation of the urban environment in areas that weren't typically urban, if I can say that right. Uh, It's Cobalt Banker Commercial. Recently, I was talking to some of our professionals uh, in Huntsville. There's a development called Constellation that's going on out in uh, kind of the area around Spokane, beyond the suburbs, and a development called Millworks. And what i find particularly fascinating about this development is sort of the recreation of the urban environment in a non-urban setting so while we talk about you know the headline so to speak of this is the future of cities or, or maybe some people talk about the death of cities people seem to kind of have a propensity towards the city environment, the city experience. So, um, let's start, let's start there. Like, what does that mean in terms of the future of cities? If people take the city life and environment and then recreate it elsewhere, I know Greg or Tracy, who'd like to go first to comment on that?
2: Well, I'd love to just jump in and say that, um, this is not a new phenomenon. I've been studying the urbanization of suburbs for over 10 years and Um, I do think that it's something that will be supercharged by the pandemic. But, you know, uh, the U.S. has been um, suburbanizing for a couple generations now, right? First housing, then jobs. And so it kind of makes sense that suburbs 3.0 might be um, play, (laughs) the the, the kind of the last dimension of uh, of creating a live-work-play environment. And... Uh it's good news, really, for the United States, because um, the alternative is, you know, suburbs that don't have a complete land use mix and that involve um, huge amounts of car travel. So urbanizing suburbs is really good news for climate change, and it's really good news for equity and inclusion because most Americans live in the suburbs now. And so, this is how um, they can get access to um, urban experiences, um, urban opportunity, urban prosperity.
0: Interesting, interesting. Greg, anything to add to
2: that? Yeah, I'll jump in there. I mean, I,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I've read Tracy's great reports on this there's, there's a great series that she co-wrote called Foot Traffic Ahead that looked at, for example, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Uh, it was three years ago, I was sitting in the office of Christopher Leinberger at George Washington University. Chris is a real estate developer, worked on these reports with Tracy. Um, and for example, we were looking at the Metroplex there, and he was telling me excitedly about Craig Hall, who's the billionaire developer of the Dallas Arts District, who's now turning his old suburban office park, Hall Park, out in Frisco, Texas, one of the fastest-growing suburbs, metro fringes of, of the Metroplex there, and turning it into a millennial playground of you know mixed-use development, housing, hotels, etc. And you know we're seeing that. Development play out across the United States. Uh, you know, Mark Toro in, in Atlanta is developing projects like that. Avalon, very successful walkable urban environment. I believe it's in Alpharetta, which, you know, nowhere near the Atlanta core. And I think my favorite uh, example of just sort of like how much we overbuilt American suburbia uh, is that you have Somerset development in New Jersey, which is just building a chain of dead AT&T office parks and turning them into mixed-use developments called Bellworks, starting with the old Bell Labs in Homeland, New Jersey, and now a project in Hoffman Estates, Illinois, in the ex- outskirts of O'Hare. So yeah, there's there's all sorts of you know incredible opportunities here to take you know this overbuilt '80s and '90s suburbia and build the kind of walkable amenities that people want, even if they have to drive there from the exurban fringe to slightly closer in, versus going all the way downtown.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. Uh, so it's to say, like people uh, they aren't running from cities. In other words, they they like the amenities, perhaps the like proximity to daycare, to work, uh, saving a commute. Um, they just want it in a different place. Maybe, they, maybe it's because millennials are aging and they're in families. They want a little bit more space, but they do want it. They do like that urban environment. So I don't think that's uh, a negative for cities. They still like city amenities. They just, they're just they just embracing it a little bit differently. It also reminds me of uh, utopian communities like Hershey, Pennsylvania and Pullman and things like that have near gone by. I don't know if these are utopian communities or sort of opportunistic real estate developments. It's, uh, I guess maybe
1: we'll see.
2: What they are is what they are is new communities, right? They represent um, a response to the cost of living in the urban core and to constraints on growth in the urban core. And, um, you know, so I think there's a full arc throughout history of seeing, you know, people say like, OK, you know, no city is full, (laughs) but um, but I need uh, I need somewhere where I can start cheaper and fresher and new towns like greenbelt and columbia and uh and and hershey are our response to that yeah
1: but to build this point i was gonna say no city is full but cities are constrained so like a phenomenon that i saw in denver for example a front range where you know you see in pew studies more americans want to live in denver it's the american dream right of urban and, and and wilderness but there you see millennials who are being who, who cannot purchase in the urban core because they simply haven't built enough or they haven't built enough homes to own that's focused on rentals because of regulation quirks have to go to the ex-urban fringes because that's where the housing starts are because that's where they can get permits. Like There's this real centripetal, centrifugal force at play where, they, where a lot of younger people and younger families want to stay in closer urban cores, but they have to go ultimately where there's affordability and that's happening at the fringe. There's a lot of work to be done and we can get into the toolkit there zoning, parking minimums, lots of stuff that can be deregulated that would allow more housing construction closer in. But until then, people are going to go to these kinds of new communities because that's what can get built.
0: Yeah, that's right, Greg, it's great. It's a great segue into something I was just thinking about. There's a lot of ways we can go from this discussion, but before I go into what's sort of driving the the relocations, let's talk a little bit about zoning and land use. I know, I think I was just listening this morning to, you know, be it in urban markets or suburban they're talking about the ADUs, the, the uh, additional units that can be built to, to densify and provide more housing. To, to what extent is is zoning a limitation or driving factor behind uh, what's going on in cities or what's going on, as you said, in communities outside cities? And, and might that change? Might might the model of Houston or something be right where there was no zoning, I guess, I don't know if there is now, but at one time they let everything be built, anywhere, which is kind of how cities are to a large extent, right? You have housing above retail, it's no big deal in a city. But it's thought of as like, oh, that's an interesting use if you're in a suburban. Maybe people are rethinking that. So to what extent will there need to be a change from sort of the Euclidean separation of uses in the suburbs um, to, to accommodate the desire of today's, uh, today's population? I should direct okay. it to Tracy. Your I'll go ahead. Go ahead. say Tracy, I'm sorry about that.
2: I've written I have written quite a bit about zoning reform, so I'll just jump in and say that it is absolutely uh, essential. It's a necessary first condition and that, um, you know, in both cities and suburbs, I think you will find very outdated zoning codes that are not just one generation, but maybe two, three or four generations old and that really don't reflect today's realities um, and, and in fact reflect um, some some values that i don't think people today um you know broadly embrace but i think it's important to emphasize that where we are right now in terms of american urban form and what's going on especially with housing but this applies to commercial real estate too is that um zoning is just one piece many people for you know all the time now just get stuff built by getting a variance right just like trying to find some way around Um, existing zoning, but they're operating under other constraints too like the building code, like the cost of materials and labor, like infrastructure. And all of those pieces matter just as much as zoning. So there isn't one magic thing that if we change, we're going to unleash a new era of urbanism and change our economic geography forever. Uh, But there is rather more like a constellation of things that we have really let get quite bulky and out of date. And so it's really limiting dynamism in the whole country, basically.
0: Right. Greg, are there any communities that have really sort of challenged the the status quo as Tracy sort of described them that you think... Uh, might be a uh, foreshadowing the way cities or new developments, or is it still just something needs to be explored?
1: Well, I, th- I think there's some great tinkering at the edges that's happening when it comes to housing zoning. I mean, we saw during the pandemic, for example, I mean Minneapolis, citing you know uh, you know history of racial segregation, you know uh, allowed. By right, you know, multifamily on lots, although very small, you know, gentle density and ADUs, as you mentioned, ADUs, of course, happening in Los Angeles. Um, State of Oregon has, you know, deregulated some of its zoning to some extent, too. But like no one's cracked that particular code and no one's really sort of figured out housing affordability there. Um, I've seen some other interesting experiments too. I think mean, San Francisco's eliminated parking minimums, or they've done some real changes there. And like, you know, the Sightline Institute of Seattle has estimated that, you know, that adding the parking minimums add several hundred dollars a month. I think two hundred and fifty to three hundred a month when it comes to urban rents. And so, if you simply change that kind of a, a you know regulation as well by forcing people to have parking spaces, you could lower rents in, in urban places. Um, but yeah, no one no one's sort of figured this out yet. Oh, go ahead, Tracy.
2: Chattanooga's form-based code also immediately comes to mind as a different way to approach zoning that isn't about regulating uses at all um and and i think is is very promising and then thinking beyond zoning um to things like uh changing the way we do property taxes and changing the way we do building codes i think we're just starting to see we're just starting to see some of the major structural tinkering that that can be necessary so pittsburgh adopting a land value tax <laughs> is um i think a, is a huge milestone and i think um uh, building codes will probably mostly need to be taken on at the state level and so that is um that's a whole nother um order of work yeah it, what i enjoy
0: about this is it's interesting it's not just the large cities setting a model for smaller communities to your point it's pittsburgh and chattanooga that perhaps are are, are pushing the envelope if you will that maybe miami or dallas will mimic in the future it's super i think that's somewhat different maybe in the past we thought the cities kind of led and the suburbs or the smaller communities mimic so i find that uh, your comments interesting in that area let's for let's delve a little bit behind sort of the driving force behind the reason why people have migrated i mean obviously there's the millennial there's age you know people just aging into needing more space for their families and things like that but there's also you know i don't think a day goes by where there's not a headline about the future of the office and office work or office values or anything like that uh, i'd like to say you know I, this is going to sound like a cop i like to say i just don't think we know yet because you know let's not forget that after the tragic events of 9 11 everyone said no one will ever work in a high rise you know the top floors of a high rise again and yet um the, you know buildings you know the sears tower and willis tower here in chicago is now like a short building right people with, are willing to do that so it takes time to figure it out but what what is it about is there a declining demand for office space do we do we know know, how long it takes before some equilibrium uh, between work from home work from office hybrid um how long will it take before it takes effect or we know what the long-term effect is um which has an impact obviously on commercial real estate tracy do you want to start again
2: you know dan that's a really good question and so i think what we saw in the top 10 office markets in the US prior to the pandemic was that there, there's been a, a systematic, consistent, long-term decline in the number of square feet of office space consumed per worker that really predated even the Great Recession and that then endured after the Great Recession. So um, that's what was going on in the really the, the big office markets. What's been interesting about the pandemic is to see how it's taken that trend and spread it to every size market in in the U.S. I do think that it's a sticky trend, given how long it's been going on, well over a decade. And that that part of that is related to the changing nature of work itself and to uh, hybrid, the possibilities of hybrid work so you know that is um i don't think that's something that's going to change and you know that means that it's not so much like oh my god now we have too much office space um, because the sectors of the economy that use offices those are the sectors in the economy that are growing very rapidly so there's also new demand for office um you know which will take up slack product the problem is that a lot of the office space that we have is obsolete and that it's it's not intended for the kinds of layouts that support consuming fewer square feet per worker, and it's not supportive of the kind of knowledge economy work that is becoming more common that I'm describing.
0: Right. So,
2: Greg, let's let's
0: continue on that stream there. To what extent is the Um, There are different industries in different metro areas driving some of the dynamics around either the use of office space or the migration of people out of cities. Um, is Is it a factor? Is it just large city versus small community? Or is it a factor of what kind of work is done in the large cities? I mean, what's done in, I'll take it like a San Francisco is probably very different than done in Houston, right? And maybe that's driving some dynamic change.
1: Uh, to an extent, for sure. I mean, you can definitely see it based on industry and where they're sort of located. I mean, you know, I, I mean, part of the San Francisco story is is the cultural norms of Silicon Valley and the tech sector and sort of eating their own dog food. You know, you get big announcements like Airbnb, for example, going fully remote, with Brian Chesky himself living like a nomad now. I mean, some of that is performative, and the flip side is you see like big law, for example, you know, Castle Systems, the you know the security company which publishes, it's very very closely watched metric of this, you know, they're noting that their average is 43% occupancy pre- compared to pre-pandemic. For big law, it's 75 So we obviously see law firms are more in the office. Um, Houston is an interesting one there. I was, I was just there a few weeks ago and was talking to the CEO of Central Houston Inc. And, you know, obviously the energy firms there, they're sort of a mix in Houston, along with the other cities in Texas. Cultural norms have higher office occupancy. But even there, they're rethinking like, what do we do with this, you know, What do we do with street life here? How do we basically open up the streets? How do we get more foot traffic back? They're struggling with some of these issues as well. So so it's somewhat sectoral, but I also think it's a question of like, you know, it's a city by city. It's cultural based on the sort of firms that are located there. And then it's ultimately going to be a question, I think, of leadership in terms of what kind of local cultural institutions are going to be focused on bringing those people back. And I know this is something that Tracy's written about, about sort of city leadership. And it's going to take more than like, you know, Eric Adams, mayor of New York, like pleading with the banks to bring their employees back, you know, as much as, you know, Lloyd Blankfein and, and uh, the Goldman Sachs leadership, you know, Solomon and uh, David Solomon and others are just trying to yank people back and Jamie Dimon threatening them or Elon Musk, for that matter, threatening that his employees should show up for 40 hours plus our remote, remote work they want to do. So it's sort of all over the map. I, I'm with you on this one that we just simply can't tell because in addition to Tracy's point, and then I'll stop is, is that in addition to that, you know, years-long trend of shrinking square footage per employee, we also know that it's not like these office buildings were ever full before the pandemic. You know, I, th- I think some occupancy studies show that like, at any given moment, they were 40% occupied. People were remote working or running errands or doing something else. Like That's how I got interested in the subject. We had filled our cities, the center of our cities, with buildings that were never, ever full. So I was always interested about how do we increase activation there? How can we do more mixed use in these buildings? And now that is the overwhelming question for places like Midtown Manhattan.
0: Yeah, I think those are some good points. Let me ask you this. How about, to what extent... Um... Has the current work work from hybrid work environment, whatever we want to call it, um, driven people back to cities? Is it possible that um, if I can work from anywhere and I'd rather work, you know, and I don't have to deal with commuting, perhaps I'd rather work from Brooklyn or, you know, an urban environment? Is that is that a notable trend or not? Or is that am I just dreaming that up and most people are going the other direction?
1: I'll go first, Simon. I, I think that's at yeah, least yeah. anecdotally true. I mean, yeah, I saw Richard Florida, you know, recently, and you know, he was arguing that you know live work play is now live work play connect. That you know, that people don't want to go to the office in New York, but they certainly want to go to bars the moment they open or go to restaurants at 5 p.m. and, and basically hang out there at outdoor cafes where they are doing work, et cetera, this kind of thing. It's anecdotally there. But you know, I, I, to what extent that we can actually prove that out in the data, I'm not sure. But but yeah, again, I'll I'll defer to Tracy on this one because this notion I think is interesting. I bring up Richard because I never fully believed in creative class theory, the idea that if you built amenities for talented young people, they would come, but it might be true now, or I guess we'll finally see if it is true that you know, if you put out those lifestyle amenities, people will come to your city or to your district. I, I don't know, Tracy, what do you think?
2: Well, I wouldn't try to compete with Tulum because it has a beach. <laughs> so um, I, although, um, Shout out to Detroit for putting a beach in the middle of their downtown. I think that um, the real reason that cities aren't going anywhere and that people aren't going to leave cities is because um, we need them as engines of productivity and exchange. I don't think that it's just about lifestyle. Um, I think that there's a substantial evidence base that shows that when workers are in proximity, that they are more productive and more innovative. And that that translates directly into value for their employers. And, with, and so, so beyond the, that productivity angle, there's also the, um, the exchange angle. You know, it's it's all fun and games to be working remotely from Tulum. If you have a job, that can do that. But like, what if you have a spouse <laughs> um, or what if you lose that job? Um, you know, uh, it's really only in cities that, um, you know, that people are connected to opportunity at scale. So the issue is that um, the pandemic's been a reality check for a lot of people about how hard life is and how short life is. And what we can count on and what we can't count on, and people are asking for something different from cities than 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 has been asked previously. They want to be cared for and welcomed, not just as workers but as whole people. And in that sense, Florida is right. In
0: That's what, what sense is Florida right? Actually bad. You know, were you, that, can you take like, that one a little bit further?
2: That like the lifestyle, having amenities, <laughs> that it that it matters, right? And that and it's not that the city is a playground; it's that the city is a platform for us to care for each other, and so um, we need to have um, not just playgrounds for tech workers, um, you know, in the form of like whatever that bubble thing that Amazon built is or or whatever, but we need to have playgrounds for kids because um, workers are going to grow up and have those, Um, that we need to have safe streets, that our streets can't just be, um, you know, sewers of traffic that try to slosh cars in and out, Um, you know, if we're going to ask people to be around these things, to breathe the air around them, to try to cross them, then we need to make them something less toxic. Yeah, two points to build off that,
1: if I may, Tan. Uh, so to Tracy's point there, I, you know, there's a famous stat that you know only 17 percent of Manhattan households have children. Uh, there's a new report that just came out where landlords in Manhattan are turning people, single people away if they don't earn $160,000 a year because of the mortgage formula. So that's how you end up with a city that doesn't have families and children, first off. And second, you know the urban beach that Tracy mentioned there in Detroit, that was created by Project for Public Spaces. One of their long-mooted proposals is a sort of department or city department of the public realm. And others have put together the idea of a department of care, Justin Garrett Morrow, who is the Kaiser Foundation, that the cities need to pivot, build out new capacities for this. And... The final thing I would bring up there is, you know, the, the annual Menino survey named after the late mayor of Boston, 835 mayors across the United States, their number one concern in the last version of that was not remote work and return to office. It was the sheer trauma and PTSD of their constituents after the pandemic and how that's going to play out going forward. Uh, in addition to, you know, what we saw with senior care, I mean, 80% of the fatalities here in Canada and early COVID were in senior homes. I think it was 40% in the United States. We need to urgently rethink what senior housing and senior communities look like uh, in the United States as the boomers age. And I guess the last point there is the fastest growing community in America last year, a city, if you will, was the villages, the massive retirement community in Florida. So uh, there's a lot to be done, to Tracy's point there, about like integrating care as a, function, as a core function of how we live and how we do everything else around it.
2: Yeah. And Greg, I'd just like to follow up on that a little bit to say that why this is happening is because We as a society haven't reckoned with the social consequences of the economic necessity of women joining the workplace. The glue that held the world together for um, all of human history is, and and this is not to say I I don't wanna be in a workplace, uh, but that now that we've made that shift and now that we've unlocked the tremendous productivity and prosperity that comes with doubling the size of the workforce and with getting all this talent to work, which is a great thing. We need to take that value, some of that value that we unlocked, and we need to invest it in all of ourselves, because all we all we left right now is a gap that hasn't been filled. And the pandemic made it more clear than ever that that gap is a wound and it's hurting
0: yeah it's it's interesting you know you the pandemic brought a lot of trends in society and work and business you know that just got sort of uh accelerated or emphasized um that were were always there under the surface to your point earlier greg about uh people you know or, or maybe it was tracy just your know, work from home wasn't like an unknown pre-pandemic i know Um, with my colleagues and writers, someone said, you know, I've got to go to my kid's soccer game at Friday, it's four, I'm going to work from home. We'd be like, no big deal. That's fine. If you have that kind of work, not everyone could do that, obviously, but we've now sort of acknowledged and formalized that, right? Um, And people have kind of like, oh, I could do this all week, or maybe I should do it Monday and Friday. So that's that's something that's definitely come, you know, right to the forefront of our minds. Um, Are there that brings a question about what is the future of office space and i think we touched on that earlier but maybe we don't know but are there industries that um you know we talked about industries right you talked about twitter and companies you know headline companies i'll call it leaving san francisco or letting their workers leave work from anywhere but are there industries that are being attracted or they recognize they need that uh, interactive environment of the of a dense urban core that are coming to cities though i mean i'm thinking of in particular and i don't know if it's a trend but you know in the fulton market or i'm in chicago right that's a, they're really making a focus on tracking biotech industry right um there and what i've been told right is, is the biotech industry really likes to be in dense um you know i'll call it relatively urban environments so are there industries like
1: that is it true of biotech are there others um, Greg, why don't you, you comment on that first, if you would? I happy to. I'll set aside the life sciences issue because I think Tracy's better suited to speak to that one too. Because like that is obviously a huge growth industry. Combination of both COVID and the fact that it is extremely place intensive. I mean, Kendall Square is like the center of it in Boston and Cambridge, I should say. Um, but I, 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 to me, the great opportunity in this is, and I've been studying this for a decade as well, is, is you know, I think there's an opportunity here to think when we think of the office beyond the notion that a single hierarchical entity. Leases a box that it then puts all of its employees in, regardless of what they do. We've learned that people can work individually, atomized from home, and be more productive than they were in the bo- than they were in the box and the top and the tower. So, what I'd like to see is is a recognition that yeah, that we should start to see different combinations of people working together who are not necessarily linked by a paycheck. Um, there have been experiments, you know, in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We saw five firms, different industries, all local, put together their creative teams. Um, you know, I, I've, I could go on and on about some of this too. I, I wrote a, a brief piece for Harvard Business Review about like corporate working and sort of like various firms that were using that as a way to uh, literally sort of a, attract as like neurons, people from other fields. But I think we should start to see like various firms start to put together employees. Uh, you know, innovation teams should work alongside another innovation teams. I mean, you can safeguard the IP, but then they're working alongside peers, not necessarily colleagues, and perhaps they can learn faster. That could increase their productivity. Um, and then the second part of that is I think, I think we need to rethink what the office looks like. I mean, if you talk to Google now, I mean, they just opened their new Bayview campus, uh, which looks like, you know, under, under the undulating roof, it's gorgeous, latest cutting-edge design. And they're talking a lot about horizontal offices. And we saw Epic Games, for example, which makes Fortnite. They've taken over a, a mall in North Carolina, and they're converting that into their offices. So, you know, getting into more horizontal and thinking through about permeability of the office, bringing in outsiders or outside firms... Uh, we know, for example, I'll, I'll stop here that, you know, that, um, that in business, you know, we talk about supply chains and value chains, right? Like every firm has customers and suppliers to it that they work connected to. Well, what if you actually work together in person or you brought them in-house or there were other, you know, privileged freelancers? There's all sorts of ways you could think about your whole sort of corporate ecosystem and allow your employees to do that or, and allow them to go work alongside others as well. Now, you know, give them the agency to do so. So I, I'd like to think that, you know, once we get fully beyond, once we absorb the lessons here of remote and hybrid work. We're going to get to the sort of new renaissance of like new, thinking of new combinations of working and with whom.
2: Yeah, I share it's Greg Greg's, optimism Greg's in life science. Yeah. I, well, I really share Greg's optimism, and I, I I'll double back to life sciences. But you know, I think that in commercial real estate um, there is so much room for innovation and for business models to change. I think that there's a ton of money to be made um, through innovation in the sector. And through creating the structures and the terms that will make it easier for not just firms within sectors to share in the way that Greg described, like, okay, what if like five different biotech teams were together or whatever, but um, to even allow sharing across sectors, like imagine if um, the building that I'm in right now, instead of it just being, you know, one office for one institution, imagine if I spent part of my day working on one floor, part of my day on another floor taking a class and doing some light upskilling or retooling of myself. And then my children were below um, receiving care or education. Um, And uh, um, there was also a place for everyone to meet and eat um, and and share a a meal time. You know, I think that uh, we are, so close, <laughs> you know, but co-working is just the beginning of re-envisioning how we might share space and zoning is not the only thing that needs to change in order for us to share space um, more effectively. Commercial real estate um, financing and management models also have to change. So whoever gets innovative in this area first, um, I think there's a lot of money to be made. <laughs> and i i hope this audience is excited about that the sectors that are the most interested in being in person to double back to your question i don't have a a super accurate data-driven answer on this what i see anecdotally so far is that this is obviously true in the life sciences because of their need to use specialized equipment no one's like working in the wet lab at their house (laughs) but (laughs) Um, In-person work is also essential for um, those who need to use secure facilities Um, and I think in part because of that we're seeing um, a preference for in-person work in the finance sector because some work in the finance sector is based not just on access to information but on trust and relationships which is kind of related to this bigger sense of security. So I do see a preference for in-person work in the finance sector that I think is being poorly navigated between employers and workers without people aren't really saying, um, you know, explicitly what's needed. Um, and, you know, I I hope folks get to more clarity on that. Uh, I, and similarly, you know, education, right? Like school was virtual for a while there, but no one thought that that could go on Forever. And I mean, and we all may dabble and take a class online, but that's no substitute for in-person learning.
0: Yeah, that, make, that makes complete sense. And, and again, I, mean, I think the pandemic just accelerated some things that, you know, some things are just great conveniences. Like maybe it made people take more LinkedIn learning classes because I don't of them virtual. There's a whole library here. Wow. I never knew that before. And that helps upskill, as you said and helps keep people interested and motivated. But what we were talking about, I think what you're saying is there's land use issues. There's also kind of property use issues. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but like what goes on in that building and for a commercial real estate audience, um, that's super interesting. So yes, I so, so we, I think we delved in, it's go ahead. It's, it
2: it's Dan, you're so right, because it's really about who pays for what and how. Right. So that's what, think that probably has been, really a really
0: non-chatter conversation. Yeah.
2: Yes, the who um, not being not just tenants but also the public sector. Got it, got it. So we delved in, I think,
0: just now into a lot about the the future of office space and how that impacts urban and city environments and the future of cities. Let's also you know, the other topic that I just it, it seems like it's constantly in the headlines is affordable housing. Um, whatever that means affordable you know it, it just means you know is there a is there enough housing and enough housing in which price category uh to what extent is that driving trends in cities out of cities or uh might it reverse a trend you know if housing is just not affordable anywhere um greg do you want do you want to start a conversation on affordable housing perhaps and the impact of the future of cities
1: i was gonna say there i mean there's I mean, setting aside, of course, the formal definition of affordable housing, which I which I will touch less because I'm less of an expert in exactly that field, uh, and its tax credits, etc. But like, but like, yeah, is there is is housing affordability an issue in the United States? Yeah, it's the biggest issue. It's like the defining issue, are arguably here post COVID here, um, and you know, and also like, I mean, it drove people to unreasonable behaviors. I see the study that's coming out now that a third of millennials regret their home purchases during the pandemic. I mean. You know, I'm I'm an excerpt, but I would perhaps count myself part of that. We're selling our house right now. We bought a house during the pandemic. We bought too big a house on the presumption that we would basically have to do every activity for the rest of our lives inside of here when we bought it September, 2020. And that's changed. And we managed to buy it in a dense urban area and we're going to stay in our neighborhood. But yeah, you're going to see like all sorts of reappraisals because people were driven to mania, obviously, by the run-up in prices and, you know, that all had its issues with lack of supply, et cetera. But, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the larger problem here is, is that the waterfall effect that has happened in American cities, which is the notion of like, oh, you get priced out in one city, just move to the next tier down in terms of size and amenities, is rapidly running out of room. We saw the New York Times, for example, Conor Doherty did a whole story on Spokane, Washington, where you know, Spokane was supposed to be several cycles ahead of that waterfall, where the coastal people were gonna move to Nashville, and then you'd moved out, know, so forth. Um but they're running into it there. So we have to get to a program where we see more housing starts, we see faster construction. It's going to take more than just sort of gentle density in various neighborhoods with some of the zoning deregulation we allowed. And I mean, I'll stop here because I mean it's just this ongoing dilemma here where obviously, you, you know you have unstoppable force meets a movable object in the sense of the unstoppable force is American demography and domestic migration out of these cities. and the immovable object is homeowners who would like to see their assets continue to appreciate forever, which of course relies upon in part in scarcity. I mean, there's a reason why you see institutional housing owners talk about the fact that they, the, the perfect assets are those in markets where they simply can't get built, that have, you know they will have reliable income streams and will have reliable appreciation forever. So I, I don't really know how we cut that Gordian knot, and you see a lot of efforts at it, but you know that's still sort of the foundational issue here. And you see that in states like California, where ultimately it's about out-of-state migration into places like Texas and Arizona, where there is, to a relative extent, more housing construction. So I don't know that that leads to that leads to interesting effects. For example, like you know the fact that the uh, George, that uh, Joe Biden's winning vote total in the state of Georgia was thirteen thousand votes. Well, in the previous year, there were seventeen thousand New Yorkers who moved to Georgia. I I don't know to what extent they made the difference there for him. But those are the those will be interesting at a political level to see which states go from blue to purple, at least because of people going from those coastal markets. But but I don't know, yeah, I'll defer to Tracy here if she's got the solution to this. And if she's not charging $1,000 an hour for consulting yet on this webinar, I don't know when she's gonna start. <laughs> Tracy, for, affordable housing, on. housing
2: trends? The cascade um, still has further to go down because while Greg is completely right about everything that he said, you can still buy a house for $20,000 in a legacy city in the Midwest. So there's plenty of cheap houses. The problem is that the cheap houses are not where the jobs are. And Spokane is still in greater proximity to high-growth job centers on the coast than Columbus is. And that's just the bottom line. So, you know, this, uh, the the concentration of, of job growth, especially in finance and tech on the coasts, the consolidation of those sectors to firms that are based on the coast, I think, is a it's a huge political and social issue um, for the U.S. that has really warped um, our housing market because housing just doesn't change as fast as the as this economic transition happened. Um, it just it just doesn't adapt that fast. So I, sh- Greg, snatched the words out of my mouth with the defining crisis of our time. Um, it absolutely is, and in part because of how intertwined with climate change it is, and what it's going to take to fix it. There is no answer that's going to work other than build, baby, build. And Which, we, <laughs> in in the context of inflation, that's <laughs> it's tricky to figure out exactly, um, you know, how exactly how to get about doing this. But we have to figure it out.
0: Yeah, and build baby build. you know, it's it's supply, right? That's what you're talking about, add to the supply. Um, But the other thing I'll say is, you know, there's a there's a social dynamic in the NIMBY, not in my backyard or not that in my backyard, whatever. I live in an urban environment myself, right? I live in the city of Chicago and just building a five story building a block away is a controversy, right? You wouldn't think so. But, you know, so that's there's so it's zoning regulation and just sort of dynamics of a community in general. Um, but those things do change over time. Greg, you were going to say, and then we're going to wrap up. I'll encourage people who are listening to to prep their questions, so we'll take those next. Greg, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I just want to say, Bill, Tracy, give, you have some new news you can use for for, for viewers here? Our thoughts on this is so I'm part of a team. My friend Parag Khanna is author of the new book Move. You know, he's been putting together a, a climate tool. There's a whole there's a whole arms race here in, in climate risk technology. Understanding what regions of the United States and elsewhere are most at risk from climate change, which ones are safe. And, you know, Parag and I are trying to, you know, build a new tool to encourage investors to think not about like, you know, what is the year I get out of Miami, which we've been asked, like, what's the last moment to be in Miami? I think that's the complete wrong question to ask. The question is, when's the right year, if it hasn't happened already, to get into Cleveland, to get into Detroit, where, you know, where Dan Gilbert, of course, has bought up the center of Detroit for pennies on the dollar, you know, and there's so many more incredible opportunities like this and i know and i've seen them and i can't name names but i have seen in the decks of various companies here where they are acknowledging to themselves or trying to that there will come a day where that demographic shift to the sunbelt may reverse because of those climate disasters 40 percent of americans were victims of a climate disaster last year and at that point the great lakes new england other areas that have seen net outflows of people over the last few decades that could reverse and like and when that happens there's going to be an incredible opportunity to take these cities like buffalo new york built for twice its population currently uh, and to take that infrastructure and breathe new life into it and build that for a new generation of residents. I think that's like the greatest opportunity for American renewal there. and and you know, we know there's climate headwinds that will that will increase the attractiveness of those regions. There's a reason I live in Montreal, I mean, we have great climate here and it's getting only better all the time Great climate, three months a year right um uh,
0: but anyway I will uh, I'll take that as a warming comment as well since I'm a Midwesterner and I look out at the uh, the uh, the lake of you know Lake Michigan and see all that water and wonder like oh I wonder if this would be attractive to people in California at some point right who, who may lack water because of change but in any case we covered a lot of topics that are sort of as I said earlier behind the commercial real estate story you know housing uh, the use of office space, uh, generational change, in industry uh, change as well. I hope the audience has found it interesting. And now we're going to turn it over to comments or questions. So, Rachel, I will turn it on to you to ask questions of our panelists, Greg and Tracy. Yes, thanks, Dan. Um, our first question here is, Greg mentioned that parking affected rents. Can he please elaborate about that? I didn't understand if he was saying that it increased or decreased rental rates.
1: Uh, I would refer you. I can find. Thank you. I can find for the for the show notes later if we, when we post this uh, a link to the Sightline Institute study. But it's basically construction costs that you know requiring parking requires developers to build it. I and mean, if you're in dense urban areas, you might have to build it underground. You might have to build dedicated structures, and so therefore those costs have to be passed along ultimately to the renters. And so therefore, if you can you know simply not build parking, whether it's surface or a structure, then you could have lower construction costs and changes your pro forma. So. Um, I, you know, I'll, show, I'll throw out one example of an interesting project here that's happening in uh, Tempe, Arizona. A cul-de-sac. It's a startup. They're trying to create branded walkable communities across the United States. And their first community there, you know, very close to the Arizona State University campus, is going to have 1,000 residents. I think it's about 650 units, but they have banned all parking on the site. They're going to provide uh, scooter memberships, and there's a light rail stop. They're going to provide ride-hailing passes. And, and give mobility options to residents instead, and then basically take that land back for you know, more units and more you know, retail uses and others. So, so trying to change the whole financial model of it by removing parking from the equation. So I think there's other great opportunities like that if we can just simply you know, remove that part of code that you, you know, if you have X number of residents, you gotta build X number of parking spaces. Great. Rachel, other questions? Thank you. Greg. Yes, this is for Tracy.
2: How do we address the hurting wound of the gap of women in the workplace? That's, that's a tough question because I think it's, it can't just be on employers. And I think there's, um, I think people have been asking very loudly for a whole of society response and, you know, feeling greeted with deafening silence. Um, I think that the Build Back Better Act had some of the right ideas in it, in terms of investing in early childhood education Um, because it's uh, many studies have shown that it is easier and more likely for women to be in the workplace and to pursue higher paying work if they know that their children are in a high quality care setting. And then, um, you know, not all women are mothers. I think that um one thing that is true uh, that we see in travel behavior research across the board is that women make more trips than men for a variety of reasons um just based on you know how some of it is you know caretaking things related to children but it might be caretaking of elders um, or other members of their family or it might just be you know sort of logistics you know in terms of like you know how how households are dividing life up and So anything that we can do in order to make it um, easier, safer, and more efficient for women to travel is something that is going to help them. So this is something that I am thinking a lot about in my work, um, that the location of an office, for example, is something that really matters for women. Is that trip to the office a wasted trip or is it actually like three trips combined in one? And so that's something that I think employers can control and should be thinking very sharply about. And then I think that um, we all understand that broadly speaking, the impacts of the pandemic, um, other than actual death from COVID, other than that, the the impacts have disproportionately fallen on women for a variety of reasons. And so. Um, Making available to women the flexibility to cope and to receive care is something that I still think is um, in it's a it's a bit in short order with many employers. Um, you know whether it's you know sort of top shelf knowledge economy employers or whether it's um, typical employers in um, retail, leisure, and hospitality, which are sectors where the workforce is um, very dominated by women. Um, I think that uh, there's been a desire to reopen and that some people feel a, a need and a desire to be served and that it's, it's important to, while it's okay to feel those things and to want to receive care, we also have to remember that caretakers need care. And um, we, we need a whole of society response to strike the right balance on that.
0: Excellent. Thank you um Rachel other questions yes we have another comment question that just came in we are in a tertiary market with a housing shortage municipality won't help developers with infrastructure expense anything on the horizon from the public sector to help otherwise
2: single-family home development is dead in the water and I guess for the group
0: yeah, it's kind of a kind of an observation, but let's put it, let's maybe frame it this way: Is are there what kind of government activities can be done in if, they, if I don't know if there's a difference in urban and secondary or tertiary markets to encourage housing? We talked about zoning. I think we talked about that earlier. Uh, what else can be done to increase the supply of housing in a smaller market, maybe where the demand isn't as large uh, and maybe not as
2: economically feasible as a, a large suburban area? Tracy or, or Greg, do you have a thought? Middle. I mean, we're not going to um, single family our way out of the housing crisis, and it's the least efficient use of infrastructure possible. So um, meet that municipality literally in the middle <laughs> and say instead, OK, um, can I do stack townhouses? Can I do uh, small apartment buildings? You know, not everything has to be a high rise. Not everything has to have elevators. Um, you know, what can I do that's going to be a more efficient use of um, the, infra- the infrastructure that I want to ask for? Um, at the end of the day, um, you'd have to be building like pretty high tax value <laughs> single family houses in order to pay back the, infra- the infrastructure costs, um, you know, that-, that you could potentially be using. And um, smart municipalities are making those decisions right now.
0: Interesting. It does also reminds me a little bit of, you know, I live in, again, in Chicago, where there's two flats are ubiquitous, right? And two flats were sort of the salvation for working class families back in the 1930s or 40s, right, when they could, they could afford to buy one and rent the other. You know, it's not super dense housing. It, they make very nice residential streets and beautiful fronts. Um, but that could be a, uh, you bring that back, could be a, a potential debt. Yeah. Greg, I'll let you uh, comment as well.
1: Yeah, and to answer the question, but first to address your stand, I mean, I think uh, the Chicago two-flat as a typology is sort of really indicative of what's happening in, in America's urban cores today because the two-flat is a dying breed. Pete Saunders has done some great work on this to show that basically dilapidated two-flats are torn down and uh, two-flats in affluent areas are being converted into single-family housing. And so basically those neighborhoods are de-densifying. So that's exactly sort of like played out at large um, to the to the question. Um, there's nothing great. I mean, obviously, President Biden, you know, put out a sort of you know plan to try to increase housing affordability. I think the piece that most people seized upon was more manufactured housing, which I think translates in most you know in most context to trailer parks. But there is some interesting areas, uh, you know, there, Factory OS and some other startups that are trying to, to borrow from the Japanese model of, you know, factory assembly of housing components to reduce costs. That doesn't help you though with land and entitlement, so I don't know. Um, there was some interesting proposals, and I think it was in Build Back Better, but I have lost track of like which ones are alive and which ones are dead. But there was some ideas about you know the Department of Transportation and HUD working together uh, to basically, you know, sort of offer density bonuses, or also like basically threaten to uh, punish communities uh, by removing grants if they wouldn't actually allow, you know, increase the density there. Um, I'm not sure how that helps in your particular context, but there is an interesting sort of toolkit there at some of the federal agencies there, but, you know, how that, how that trickles down and what can actually get passed at this point, particularly with the midterms looming as a whole other matter.
0: Yeah, excellent. I think the answer to the question we had is it's complicated. There's a lot of things that come into play, government, policy, um, uh, supply chain, development costs, construction costs, zoning, all kinds of things that come into play that are equally important in urban as well as tertiary markets. I think we have time for one more question. So, Rachel, if you can uh, pick amongst the field there and ask one more question of our panelists, that would be great. Before we wrap up. Absolutely. This is for the group. What are the next big cities you foresee booms in the commercial activity? space over the next three to five years and i think greg touched on it a little bit
2: but if there's anything else to share
1: uh first you were named you want to go first there yeah i feel like i like i feel like i'm unleashing like you know housing speculation on your unsuspecting community so we'll see um i mean you know one that jumps out you know sort of like the next texas people appointed northwest arkansas fitville bentonville there i uh, i know like great quality of life people like it Uh, They have a whole Northwest Arkansas chamber as a whole program, where if you move there, they'll pay you $10,000 and throw in a mountain bike because they're so proud of their mountain biking there. Um, I do think that's interesting. Um, You know, beyond that, I'm sort of curious about what continues to sprawl. Or also, you know, we know for a fact, for example, in in various surveys that the, the American urban typology that people like the most is effectively a college town. You know, they like to have, you know, walkable urbanism, but they don't like the big cities like, you know, the Ann Arbors and the others. So other places I would look to is, you know, is, is, is you know, American college towns and also places like them, Asheville uh, and, and the Villes, basically. Uh, other places that have what Joel Garreau, who wrote Edge City 30 years ago, wrote a whole piece 10 years ago, arguing this was sort of the American future. Uh, he, you know, Santa Fe was his urban ideal at the time, which has gotten increasingly unaffordable as well. Um, but looking at these sort of smaller metros that actually are rich in amenities, partly because of that public funding due to funding federal universities, uh, I think that's where I would look for most opportunities there, where you're going to find a cosmopolitan mix of people, uh, and you're going to find a great mix of amenities to cater to those people, but you might find more housing affordability, and you're going to find access to nature and all the things that many Americans want. So so that's what I would look. I would scout, you know, which which college towns most suit your geographical and cultural uh, affinities.
0: Tracy, other thoughts, different thoughts on... on uh... The cities of the future, we'll call it.
2: Well, I think that Greg is right to be thinking uh, along the lines of um, really durable place-based assets like universities, um, and I think you can think of a few other asset categories too, like hospitals and cultural institutions. Um, you know, things that just definitely aren't moving <laughs> and that people like to be near. Um, so, you know, like Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, immediately comes to mind as like a, a place that has these these you know incredibly durable assets. Um, let's see, I would look to, um, tertiary cities that are proximate to the coast, but not exactly on it. So Asheville, Gettysburg, and then looking in further west, um, you know, looking to the west, but, you know, further inland than Spokane, um, I think this is already happening in Boise, and I personally would definitely buy anything that was for sale in Omaha.
0: All right. So I have to say this from a Cobalt Banker commercial standpoint. I know some of our busiest and most active markets are places like Wilmington, North Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Athens, Georgia. Uh, and in college towns, we actually have a disproportionate presence in Mankato, Minnesota, Champaign, Illinois, all of markets that for us at least are doing very well. I don't know if it's for the reason you stated or not, but it's certainly interesting. It sure sounds to me uh, like a Banker knows how to make money. Yeah. Well, that's a, those are just, you know, Colobank or commercial in particular, that's, those are the markets we tend to have a presence in. We have presence in all markets, but those, I just happen to notice because I look at the activity and talk to our people all the time, that those markets are very active. So anyway, it's almost top of the hour. So I want to thank Greg and Tracy for your time and your insights. I think we touched on many, many things about the future of cities, both urban, you know, dense urban cities and tertiary market cities, uh, what's driving them in terms of, uh, of housing, jobs, industries, uh, all kinds of things. It's, it's, it is a complex equation, and we are in the midst of a big global experiment that was uh, set, set afire or blazed by the pandemic and i think it's a number it always will be an evolution but it'll be probably another couple of years before it uh we kind of know what the end result is so tracy and greg again i thank you very much for your comments i want to thank everybody in the audience if you did put in your email address uh, and your contact information will make sure to notify you of the next Banker commercial or CBC chatter that's coming up uh, in the fall this year, uh, where we'll have another topic of interest sort of behind the headlines of commercial real estate. very much hope you enjoyed your time with us today. Uh, We we, uh, welcome your feedback and we look forward to hosting you in another conversation in the near future. Uh, If you have any questions on the next screen, you'll see contact information to reach out. Again, I'm Dan Spiegel, Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Cobalt Banker Commercial. Thank you for your time and we look forward to being in touch with you sometime soon. Have a good afternoon.